You're listening to the HSDNA Podcast from the Garden State. Your host, Justin Starbird, and guests from HS Design walk you through each step of the medical product development process. Listen in as they discuss topics like contextual research, human factor testing, and conceptualization, giving you the best practices and real examples of success in the field. And now, here's your host, Justin Starbird. Welcome back to this episode of HSDNA. My name is Justin Starbird, and I am joined for the seventh and final outline overview of the new book, Applied Human Factors in Medical Device Design by author, Dr. Mary Beth Privatero. Mary Beth, welcome back. Hey, thanks, Justin. I'm super excited for this, this particular section because this is where the money is. This is the one that's so critical and so important to every medical device that's released. Happy well, to I, I, yeah, I'm happy to have you too. I mean, you know, I feel like we've been building up to this throughout the the course of of the series. Um, you know, and just like any good book or textbook, you know, you want to end with some of the most important information. Not to say that you can't flip to the end and and read it first, um, but like you said, this is uh, obviously very important in terms of uh, what comes next for for companies. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this this section of the book, it, it really covers the, the FDA Human Factors Guidance from 2016 and the, um, the, the International Standard 6366. I mean, this is the one that talks about the validation study, residual risk, and, and really getting um, the differences between you know, combination products and really how, how do you prepare a report for agency submission. So this one is a critical section. You had some pretty amazing people um, that that helped you uh, finish this off and and write about um, some of the, write in some of the chapters. Obviously, you oversaw you know uh, oversaw their work, but um, they provided some pretty uh, key elements. Tell us a little bit about who uh, who assisted you with this. Yeah, absolutely. This this um, particular section of the book would not happen without these contributors. So I really can't thank them enough, and I respect and appreciate each and every one of them that contributed. So just uh, you know just so rattle them off, you know, the, the human factors validation testing, which is like summative usability testing that includes residual risk that was written by myself and Kate Cox from HSD and Merrick Kozak um, from Amerigo by UL. And Merrick is um, phenomenal. Merrick's got a, an amazing background in human factors, really respect his opinion. Um, he's also Amy faculty. And then there was a, a chapter by, um, it's titled Human Factors Validation Testing of Combination Products. Um, that's by Tim Reeves, Christina Mendat, and Liz Maurer. Um, again, super solid and just really kind of honing, honing in a little bit on what are the differences between, a, you know, what are the special circumstances around doing human factors validation testing for the combination devices. And then the last one was the last chapter, which is preparing an HFE report for agency submission was by Merrick, again, Merrick Kozak. And, and you know, like I, like I said earlier, you know, Merrick is one of those, uh, he's like a good bud. I, I, I lean on Merrick, I'll call Merrick. So like, Merrick, does this make sense to you? And he's just always a fantastic sounding board and wonderful contributor to, to the human factors field in general. Awesome. It's so neat to hear some of their backgrounds and, and uh, how they assisted, you know, bringing this whole, you know, project together. I know it, it was not easy and, it, and um, you know, it took a lot of time, you know, to, to complete the project. So really neat that you guys were able to, uh, you know, pull it together in such a unique way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
So let's jump in then. Um, it, what's the significance of human fact and factor validation studies? Right. Well, I mean, the significance is essentially the ability to get your device approved is the, is the, is the short story of it. Um, but it's probably not exactly what you're looking for in terms of what it, why, why is it, why do we do it? You know, it's really, it's conducted to demonstrate that the device can be used without serious errors, uh, serious use errors or problems um, by the intended users under the expected conditions. So it's testing that's comprehensive in scope. It's, it's got to be adequately sensitive to capture those use errors caused by the design of the user interface. And um, it, it's really um, intended to um, get generalized actual to actual use. So doing enough with enough people that you can generalize that information to identify a majority of the use errors that might happen once the product is released. Like you did on the previous uh, section, can you describe the process of conducting a human factors validation study? You know, like what are some of the requirements? Yeah, so this is the, this is the one human factors methodology where the agency's done a really good job of communicating what their expectations are. And it's the one that has some significant rules that must be adhered to in order to have um, an adequate validation test. So. Um, you know, the test runs like the other human factors studies. Um, so, you know, you're going to generate a protocol, you're going to go through the logistics, do the testing, do the root cause analysis and report. So the process is largely the same. However, there are some specific requirements that have to be included. So for example, you have to have a minimum of 15 users that were 15 users of your user group. If you have different user groups, then it would be 15 of those different user groups. By that, I mean if it was a product that was intended to be used by both children, by pediatric users and adults, then you'd have 15 pediatric users and 15 adult users that would be um, in the test. You have to have the final product. So the final product must be functional. Um, it, it must be representative of what's going to go out into the field. So you have to have you know, functional devices, you have to have the instructions for use. It's really intended to be done and conducted as the last and final step prior to that release. Um, you have to have the right environment. So it, it must be done uh, in the right, if it's, if it's a, a surgical tool, then it would be intended to be used in a simulated study um, where you would use an animal model, cadaveric model, or just a synthetic model um, to, to go ahead and, and to demonstrate that use. And then you're really going to follow through with your, you know, your, your typical traditional, you know, setting it up the protocol, getting all these requirements met, doing that testing, and then doing root cause analysis, and then reporting it. So this type of testing really combines with everything. It does. It does. You know, it, the the you know the 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 one thing for the the difference between a, a validation test, which is also sometimes called a summative, versus a formative test, are that in a formative test you don't have a lot of those rules. So um, you can do a little. There's a little bit more wiggle room, but in um, the validation test, you know, you've got to adhere by strict rules. And, and then another strict rule that I didn't mention, which is important, is that as a human factors evaluator, I cannot interact or assist <clears throat> the user unless I record that I did. Um, so it's, it's sort of a, I want to be a fly on the wall during this test and let them just use the device and then watch them. And then when they become 
challenged as prompted them to say, you know, what would you do if this was a real case? And then eventually I can inter intercept or intervene, um, but I have to mark that and note that. And oftentimes when you do intervene, then that becomes a use error and that gets noted. So it's, uh, it's definitely a process that has got a little bit more control to it that, um, that, that must be adhered to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can't imagine jumping in and assisting and saying, hey, you know, you got to do it this way instead of that way. That's going to make it a, yeah. a challenge. Yeah. Uh, so describe uh, training decay and what is it and why, why is that so important to consider? You, you spent a little bit of time in the book on that as well. Yeah. So in the book, you know, what, um, with, in regards to training, there's a couple of points on, on training that I think are important. One is that you, if you have training um, that you're expected the users to do and training is one of your risk mitigators, then you're one of your risk control measures, then you actually have to conduct that training just like you would upon market release. And then if they, if ordinarily they would go in and use the device, then they can go ahead and, you know, go and again, replicate reality and, and use the device. But oftentimes the healthcare practitioners, they may be trained on the device and then there's a period of time before they actually use it. So the agency expects that there would be a training decay that would happen and that you would replicate that training decay in your human factors validation study. So it's important because you want to you want to reflect reality as much as possible. So um, and, and literature doesn't necessarily support us in knowing what is adequate training decay. So this training decay can vary widely. So in some instances, it might make sense to train your user and then wait a period of time, a week or so, and then have them come back. In other instances, it may be appropriate to just take an hour. And, and I think that an hour is a safe minimum for training decay if there is going to have a delay between the time that, that the user would be trained on it to the time that they, that they use the product. What what are some standard ways in which you can you know kind of combat that? It is like our our video or audio or are there other mediums that you can you know um, give the give the end user an opportunity yeah. to you know improve um, their ability to learn how to use a device? Yeah, so you know the 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 training in and of itself, you know, one of the things that I think is, is difficult to know is that everyone is receiving that same level of training that, you know, that they've got the same bits of information, but you, you can't really hold people to, um, to, to really commit, fully commit to training. So you may have a training session and those healthcare practitioners, um, you know, they may not be all that interested. They may be on their cell phone and may be distracted. That's reality. Um, so you can do things like have a supporting video. Um, you know, you can't, it's sort of like you can take the horse to water, you can't make them drink, but I can provide really nice water for them. So maybe I want them to drink or make it easier for them. So if they know that they can get trained on a device with a five minute video or three minute video, then they're more likely to do it. And what about uh, residual risk analysis? And, and what is that all about? Sure. So residual risk analysis. So that's, you know, you'll, you'll go through and run your study. And let's just say that um, you, you have, you know, again, you have your complete IFU, you have your, your functional device. Um, and, and maybe let's say it's a relatively complex device. And during the process of conducting the, the validation study, 
Um, you know, in, in, in this particular, in the validation study, one of the other big differences is that you're going to use your risk analysis that we talked about previously to determine your critical tasks. So once you've, you've taken those critical tasks and you're in the middle of this study, uh, you're assessing them and you have some use errors on those critical tasks. Let's say that you decide that I'm going to change that IFU. Um, residual risk would be um, looking at what is the risk if I leave it alone? What's the risk if I, if I um, make a change? So if I look at the residual risk and I say, you know what, there's, it's still a high probability, there's still a high likelihood that this use error is going to happen in the field, a manufacturer may decide that they're going to make a change, at which point they need to determine whether or not additional testing might be necessary and often is the case where additional testing is necessary. It also demonstrates that I have got uh, enough risk control measures that, uh, that I don't need to do a new validation study. So that piece of it is super important to just address what is the re residual risk after I have done some risk control measures. So after you conduct a validation study, let's say, and in that particular study, I don't know, maybe um, things didn't go very well or there were lots of use errors. You obviously you never want that, but let's say there were. Uh, and you decide to change the design. How much do you have to retest or, or what is the situation when that happens? Yeah, that, that's a, it's a great question because oftentimes, you know, if people haven't done their human factor studies, uh, in that process and they wait till the end, this can sometimes happen. Um, and the unfortunate consequence is that oftentimes you do have to retest. You know, in a validation study, you're going to be focused in on the critical errors, those critical tasks. The critical tasks are, are defined by those that are the ones that are the highest risk. So if you have use errors on those critical tasks, you change the design, it's really impossible to get through your residual risk analysis um, and, and to, to really justify why you didn't go back and, and get more users and, and run another validation study. So, you know, my advice is, is that if you haven't done any, um, any work, any human factors work, and you're ready for your, you feel like you're ready for your validation study, you might want to pilot it a little bit and see if you do have some of those use errors coming up and then um, if you did change the design, then you, you can conserve your funds to go ahead and make any last-minute last design changes um, before, mm -hmm. and get through that retesting period. It, it, does that create a, um, a significant difference for, say, combination products? Uh, yeah, I mean, combination products, you know, there, there are some... Um, there are some significant differences between uh, between you know a regular like a scalpel tool that, that you know that would be used in surgery versus a combination product. You know the thing that that's different between combination products and and traditional devices. I mean, first and foremost, in a different division of the FDA, um, it's one CDRH, the other one is CDR, and the additional requirements really get into. Um, labeling and dosing, storage, disposal. So there's there's a, a little bit more to the the overall testing that you can expect um, between the, the two different agencies and then and uh, specific for for combination products. Sure. Well, you kind of go into um, you know detail in the book uh, by describing the importance of accurately defining you know the critical tasks 
Um, yeah. Can you describe describe what a critical task is and what's the difference between those? Yeah. So you know the the agency in and of itself has got a definition of what um, what a critical task is. So that did come out in the 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 2016 Human Factors Guidance. So. I encourage everyone to just take a pause and before they conduct any validation study to, uh, to, to find what they, what that, what it says. Um, so okay. according to the FDA guidance, a critical task is a user task, which if performed incorrectly or not performed at all, would or could cause serious harm to the patient or the user, where harm is defined to include compromised medical care. So that's the language that's directly from the agency. And then, as I mentioned before, it gets back to your use-related risk assessment because that's where you're going to know what will cause your serious harm. Okay. So there's a little bit of a difference in an interpretation between, you know, you asked the question about combination devices versus regular devices and um, you know, there's a little bit of a different interpretation between CDRH and CDR, and I think it's a little bit of a, of a kind of a, a bugaboo, if you will, within the human factors community to, to, to have to deal with, but it, it actually makes sense to me, and if I look at the, the reality of what the FDA is trying to do for us and that it's protecting our, um, uh, us as, as citizens, but um, so it, it, there's a box that's in it's in the book that that has that definition um and then it has it uh the definition for um for both cedar and, and cdrh so i just read to you the one about um from cdrh the one from cedar says that critical tasks are user tasks that if in, for that if performed incorrectly or not performed at all would or could cause harm to the patient or user where harm is to define compromised uh, medical care um which is the exact same thing that i read to you before and it looks like there is um, a repeat here in my book. I'm thinking that that's, um, uh, there's an edit here. <laughs> that's so oh, freaking funny. That is really funny. That's so funny. It's the exact same thing. Merrick, or no, this is Tim Reeves. Okay, let me let me just do this one. <laughs> That's so freaking funny. It's got the right reference, but it doesn't have the um, it doesn't have the right content. Mm-hmm. Okay, so so the difference between C, the interpretation between CDR and CDRH is that in CDRH it says you can have a little harm because there's no possible way for you to go into surgery without causing some harm. You're going to have to access a site. You're going to, you know, cause some harm. Whereas in CDER, it's, it's that you cannot harm. There's, there's no harm. And harm can be defined as that compromised medical care. So it, it's a subtle difference, um, but it's an important difference to note. Um, and that's why when you look at the, the section on combination products, it gets down to, um, you know, labeling and dosing dosing, if I don't get the right dose at the right time, well, then the medication is not going to help me. And, and I think right. that's where you're really getting into the, to the nitty-gritty on the combination product. So let me ask you then, um, what is the comparative threshold analysis and, and how is that used? Yeah, so that's a new, um, 
that's a, that is an entirely new guidance document that came out, and it's really an interesting one because um, this is for when a drug goes to be generic. And essentially what it says is that, um, in a nutshell, that you can do a comparative human factors um, test and, and confirm that the generic version is exactly the same as the combination, uh, the, the current combination product that's out on the market. Um, so what you'd have to do is you have to take the user interface on the, the and evaluate each element of that user interface and compare it to the generic user interface and say this that, that you know we're talking about apples to apples oranges to oranges that so we're we're not uh, you know we're, we're we're saying that the two of them are exactly the same therefore this one that's already been out on the market we don't need to do any additional work because we are just like it. Um, mm -hmm. so, so that's a and that's a new one and I see that that one is. Um, that particular um, methodology is actually helpful in other areas, you know, to justify why, you know, why do I need to do any additional testing if this has been the, the state of the, of the art for a number of years. So it's, it's, um, that's a really, that's a really good, um, a good human factors technique that is really just coming in, into the forefront. So we talked to the we opened up and said that this uh, this whole section is something that you know um, some people are going to fast forward to 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 get um, uh, you know get all the information out and, and this last chapter is one of the most important ones because uh, you know you're actually pulling together everything you've done in the book um, and preparing a report for agency submission. Can you provide, you know, some key tips um, to actually include in that report? Yeah. So, um, you know, again, this this chapter was contributed by Merrick Kozak, and um, you know, Merrick is, is just an, an amazingly, you know, like I said, he's just such a such a wonderful contributor to the to the field of human factors. Um, so, so this one, there's a there's a great table um, in in the in the book that. Uh, that highlights just all of the requirements. So this gives you, in, in the reporting that you give to the agency, they're really asking for a, a complete dossier that has, um, that just gives a historical story about how you've addressed human factors along the way. Um, you know, and, and, and really the key tip that I can give you is, is that because of that requirement, you need to write it down as you go. So coming at mm -hmm. the end and trying to backfill what you did while you were doing it comes becomes a little bit problematic, a little bit more of a challenge. So my biggest tip is to provide some sort of traceability and and to you know practice human factors as you go rather than than wait till the end. I don't doubt it. Uh, you know, it, if you can do a little bit as you go, isn't that what everybody kind of says? Is you know, <laughs> yeah. then it, it's a little bit yeah. And and that's so that's so wonderful to say and so hard to do. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, no doubt. Um, it, it, it's a, that's true in any any form, right? So it, you know, you also outline in the chapter. Uh, Merrick outlines report contents according to guidances and international standards. Uh, describe this and and why that is actually so so important. Um, you know, for readers to pay attention to. Yeah, so um, so he did this. The, there's a couple of great tables in the, in this chapter that he put together and. Um, it, it basically, you know, 
to a large degree, all of the guidances and standards, and what I'm referring to is the FDA guidance, and then there's one from the UK, the MHRA guidance, as well as 62366, they all have the same content areas, but they're organized slightly differently. So, um, and then their expectations of, of where they would go, you know, the 62366 just says that I just have to have it on file, whereas FDA wants you to submit that dossier. Um, so there, the, 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 um, the good news is, is that you just are moving information around as opposed to, um, as opposed to creating new content. So um, the, the table is super helpful because you can just look at the table and go, oh, okay, I can see where, um, how I need to organize my report and, and put that into a flow that the reviewers are going to expect. Right. Uh, and it, so how is that, you know, can you give us a kind of an outline of what, you know, what would maybe be entailed? Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, according to the FDA guidance, and, and it's in the appendix on that guidance, by the way, so you can, you can look it up. There's, a, there's just a, a great uh, reference there, too. It's going to have a description of your intended user, of your uses, your use environment, and the training. It'll have a description of the device user interface overall. So how do they actually go through that, the, the use of the product? Um, it'll include a summary of known use problems, um, an analysis of hazards, risks associated with the use of the device, a summary of the preliminary analysis of what formative evaluations did you do, um, and then it'll ha ask for a description and categorization of your critical tasks. And that's a section of your um, your use FMEA of your risk analysis. Um, it doesn't have to be, you know, they're not expecting the, all of your risk analysis. It's really just your use-related risk analysis and the getting to that determination of the critical task and then going through the, the um, details of the validation testing and, um, and then finally the conclusion. So it's really, um, you know, getting that last final report the one thing that is consistent too is you have to make a claim. Like you have to claim mm -hmm. that the device is safe, effective, and usable. So that that's an that's an important one. But um, that's a uh, and, and likewise making that claim, MHRA expects you to have that benefit risk status of the device. So from that risk management file. So they're asking for that residual risk, um, just a overall summary of what's going on. So as we wrap up today, uh, and we we talk, you know, about this last section and and submitting to agency, um, you know, and give give readers, you know, kind of the full scope of of what's um, expected as they go through, you know, testing their devices and combination devices and what have you. Do you have any last tips for listeners? Yeah, sure. So you know, just. Uh, you know, for this particular section and then overall, you know, a good human factors report can only be provided when you've, you've actually done the work, you know, when you follow those processes and that, you know, it's a commitment that every, every team member, you know, in the development would, would understand the importance of it um, because, you know, starting those processes later becomes immediately recognizable in the agency. You don't, you don't necessarily have good design as, as, as you, could, you could possibly have. So, you know, just to, to think about your human factors, um, when applying that human factors equals good design, and good design equals happy customers. And, and when we have happy customers, you know, of course, clinical care improves. So it's one of those fundamental customer tenants that we have to do, 
And we might as well mm-hmm. do a really good job in order to develop devices that people actually want to use and they enjoy using it. So, you know, best of luck to everyone, and, and I hope that they, 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 they uh, take the book with um, to serve as a nice reference to help them get there. Do you have any, uh, you know, this has been a, a pretty enlightening series, at least, you know, for me and uh, hopefully for, for all that have listened, and, and I kind of joked earlier about it being at Cliff Notes, but hopefully this is something that, you know, aids as a reference to dive deeper into some of these topics as, uh, as folks use it. Do you have anything that you want to add? Well, I, I just want to thank all of the contributors to the book um, again, because without their collective knowledge, it, it wouldn't have happened. Um, and I'm, I'm gratefully appreciative of that. And thank you to all of the clients and people that I've worked with through over the years to just help me build my understanding and my practices. And for those people that have written about it and published articles and published books that we've referenced in here, you know, there's this tremendous amount of information that's available to help us do good design. And you know, me as, the, as a future patient, want the best design possible because I'm, I'm only getting older and <laughs> that I need it more and more. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much for, for taking the time out of your busy schedule to walk through this. Um, the reference book is, is incredible. Your, um, you know, authors and, and contributors did a fantastic job of breaking it down and making it, uh, you know, consumable. I think sometimes those, those are those are gifts that are a whole lot more uh, difficult to see uh, unless you're really paying attention. So simplification was was um, was really great. So thanks again, Mary Beth. I really appreciate all the time that we've taken with us. Thanks, Justin. Have a great day. You've been listening to the latest episode of HSDNA. My name is Justin Starbird. Until next time. Good deal. That was great. Um, thank you very much. Uh, I will edit it and it'll make it sound great. So sorry for the interruption. I, was, I, I think we ended up, um, you know, I think it ended up coming out okay. And listen, I, before I post it, I'll send it to you, just like I always do. And um, and then if we uh, if we want to redo it, we can do it. All right, that sounds great. Cool. All right, Mary Beth. Thank you so much. Have a great rest of your day. You too. See you, Justin. Bye. All right. Bye. This has been the latest episode of the HSDNA podcast. On behalf of our guests today and host Justin Starbird, thank you for listening. As always, to listen to other episodes of HSDNA, go to hs-design.com and scroll over the HSDNA tab on our menu. Until next time, thanks for listening.